Welcome to the Weekly Investor Insights Call. Throughout the call, all participants will be in listen-only mode. Today, I'm pleased to present Charles Prideau and Philip Lespinard. Gentlemen, please begin. Thank you very much, operator, and hello, everybody. Thanks very much for listening, uh, listening live or listening to the podcast stroke replay. Uh, we much appreciate it. So, Philippe, great to have you here. Um, I'll begin by just doing the normal kind of uh, roundup of what's happened over the last week. And I think really the most important thing um, has been uh, the sense that we've rode back slightly from the brink um, of uh, of trade war um, because uh, President Trump seems to have been encouraged um, by uh, the negotiations that have been taking place um, with China. Um, and there's a sense, you know, rumors are, and these are at this stage kind of rumors really, um, that memorandums being drafted are including potentially terms of intellectual property rights and technology transfers, uh, areas which have been really very uh, sensitive and which, for example, the kind of publicity around Huawei had uh, in particular uh, centered. So um, there is, I think, also a degree to which it doesn't suit uh, the president to have an enormous amount of negative publicity at this stage uh, associated with China because of the knock-on effect that that could have on markets uh, at a time when, as we know, President Trump is very sensitive to uh, the Dow. Um, and if people drew a straight line between uh, his actions and uh, weaker markets, then in this already beginning phase, uh, re-election phase, um, then he would be um, apprehensive about that. I think the other thing to highlight, particularly out of the U.S. this week, um, was the PMI, um, which picked up to 55.8 in February, again, above 50 denotes expansion, driven primarily by services as opposed to manufacturing. Um, Eurozone data continues to be really very, very flat, uh, zero literally in the case of German uh, Q4 GDP growth. Um, interesting to note in the UK um, that we've still got that um, uh, pretty robust labor market position. Um, unemployment's measured at a stage at a um, low of 4%. Um, and we'll come back to the kind of consumer spending power uh, that both the U.S. position and, of course, the U.K. position perhaps denote here. Um, so in, in general, you know, here we are um, almost two months in now to the end, to the beginning of this year. And markets, equity markets have been uh, pretty good um, with bouncing back healthily from the setback that we saw at the back end of last year. Uh, and equally... Uh, we've seen progress, um, the rebounds in areas of fixed income. So, Philippe, can I begin with this very important um, influence on market tone, market sentiment, which is China and the relationship with the U.S.? Um, uh, first of all, how do you read um, the way in which um, the sense of a kind of near-term truce being declared or at least you know, postponement of imposition of tariffs to, to provide more time. What's your read on that? Well, I suppose my read is that the, the, the Chinese are showing lots of gestures of goodwill. Um, and in particular, they're letting the currency, their currency appreciate. Um, and if you think about uh, you know, what the pressure has been on the on renminbi, or the Chinese yuan as it's also called, the renminbi has been had been under under pressure, and of course the U.S. administration always uh, warned that using the currency to to essentially offset the tariff increase would be seen as a very aggressive gesture. So the puzzle is that the the, the Chinese uh, authorities seem to be willing to let the, the, the renminbi appreciate, 
which is uh, at this stage of their cycle is not really helpful to their to, the, to their industrial sector. So that's a, that's a sign that clearly they are they are, they are suing for peace, as it were. Right. Uh, they, and as Keith and, and Lazad have been saying very consistently in client briefings, you know, China does at this stage in their development have so much more to lose relative to the states because of the role that exports play in their economy. Yes, exports and and particularly the industrial <coughs> exports. Um, the you know the Chinese economy now for you know the, the blueprint that the authorities have given us now for years has been that they want to rotate from from you know investment in structures and and so on and heavy investment into uh, more service oriented and more consumer led uh, economic growth. Um, but what we see is every time there is a slowdown in that transition or the or or you can see that growth is actually uh, threatening to slow below 6.5%, which it was obviously towards the end of last year after all these threats on tariffs and everything, they react very strongly by injecting cash, injecting liquidity in the, in the system and so on to try to prevent that slowdown from, from re-gathering uh, gathering steam. Now, it's so short-term pain relief. Yes, definitely short-term pain relief. Um, I should add that the injections of credit need to be larger every time. Um, so there's a limit to that exercise down the line. But so far, you know, clearly... They've got plenty of room for maneuver. So it's a little, little puzzling that they would let the currency appreciate um, quite openly and, and, and reasonably quickly, actually. Uh, now, you know, the, the, of course, the Chinese monitor their currency against the basket, not just the U.S. dollar. So the, so the, the, the dollar-yuan parity isn't quite, you know, uh, their basket is about half the volatility. So if you think, for example, it's appreciated about 6%, it's actually only moved 3% against their basket. Yeah, it's a little bit of a dollar story there, too. It is a bit of a dollar story, um, but I think the key, the big mover has been has been the, the yuan clearly, uh, and and so uh, clearly there's lots of gestures of goodwill there. Um, now there's, there may be a technical aspect, which is uh, as as our listeners will know, um, no doubt the, the Chinese bond market will start to enter the global government bond indices, global aggregate bond indices in in April. The weight starts very small, 0.3 percent every month until it reaches about five. Right. So um, that is a steady inflow. Yeah. So, so if you think about if you think about it, uh, you know, for us, uh, the view is that you know that inflow um, plus the fact that the currency isn't obviously on a weakening path is actually, and, and we know they need lower interest rates um, uh, because of the slowing uh, slowing industrial sector, particularly slowing private sector, not so much the state the state owned sector, but the private sector. So, in effect, the, the uh, if you will, the positive view on on Chinese government bonds from the point of view of lower interest rates is actually something we you know we'd be keen to exploit as soon as our mandates allow us to do that. So, right. So that's uh, that's clearly one thing we uh, we like. Um, at some point, we might want to. Have the Which, current. of course, in the fact that you have that attitude, and you know, maybe others do too, it further underpins the one. Mm. Clearly. Um, now, you know. As we start from a position not having any one exposures from a lot of our mandates, except for, of, course, of course our Asian team have a lot in in in, in Chinese one. But um, as we start from a, a neutral position, uh, that's only going one way, right? There will come a point where people start hedging, and it'll become a two-way flow. But right now, it's going to be a one-way flow for for the foreseeable future, and that's clearly helpful. People are getting ahead of that. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a. Um, I take that as a positive sign in, in the negotiations, and clearly the uh, the U.S. negotiating team uh, like that as well. They they they've registered that as a gesture of goodwill. So so hence all the future summits being announced and all of that. Right. So so we there's clearly a deal being made in the pipeline. Right. And again, if I think about you know where we've come from, that is unambiguously good news. I and mean, I think that the 
the sort of structural tension um, is likely to persist. But yeah. again, uh, and I don't think anyone's arguing against that. Um, but in the short term, it is helping, um, as I said before, to the tonality of markets. Can we just take one step back, though, still on China? Um, it played an incredibly important role um, in the wake of the financial crisis because of the supernormal stimulus, all part of the grand plan in terms of industrialization, um, such that you know, in many people's minds, it has been the locomotive um, behind the global economic recovery that we've seen. Clearly, the States have been good too, but China's growth has been spectacular. Um, how do you see China's influence from here in that kind of locomotive context? Yeah, so that's um, it's, it's it's interesting because that's that's clearly changing. So so they were the major reflationary force when the world was threatening to go into a deflationary spiral. Um, of course, quantitative easing everywhere else helped, but they were they did it at a at a pace which you know, has not been matched by anyone else. Um, and you know, of course, their their, their export sector when it became uh, when it had too much uh, capacity became quite a deflationary force on industrial prices for a while. So it had an inflationary side, which is you know sucked in a lot of imports, particularly commodities, metals, uh, oil, energy, anything you want, uh, coal, steel. Great for Australia. It was great yeah. for yeah, absolutely great for Australia, Canada, and yeah. on export-oriented countries, uh, particularly on the on the on and then food as well. By the way, if you were Brazil, I mean it it, it was great for some parts of the world. Uh, clearly, the industrial parts of the world were had a, had a different equation, which is it acted as a deflationary force on them. Now, if you think that that pivot's happening, and they are really, I mean, and by the way, now we, we, we're, in a, we're in a position where the, the, the drivers of growth in China isn't the industrial sector anymore. Um, I mean, not just just, but the rest of the economy is growing. It's just that it's not doing as fast as, as the authorities have liked it to be. And then we know that the, the private sector is starved of credit, which is not helping. So th there are some structural issues there. But as the, as that changes, China becomes less of a you know inflationary force on commodities and so on. And potentially even less of a deflationary force on the uh, on the uh, on the industrial side. So the mix the mix changes, um, and and the countries say say like Germany who who export a lot of machinery during that massive drive are now suffering. You know you, you see the mirror image in Germany having had now. Well, I talked about you know, you know, zero GDP growth declared for Germany in Q4, which means they technically avoided a recession, but clearly only just. Um, yeah, and so, so as, as that points out in his paper. Some of that's the auto sector, which has yeah. its own dynamics, and diesel, and so on. Yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't get too too, too worried about that. But but clearly, um, you've had some winners and losers of the China being part of the the, the, the global markets, and of course the, the Americans felt they were on the losing side because they weren't particularly exporting anything that China was importing. They're but importing a huge amount of cheaper manufactured exactly. stuff. So they're basically saying, look, we we lost out, and we want reparation. So um, what are the but that's changing clearly. So, so therefore. Um, given that evolution and, if you like, the more disinflationary forces that are at work now, um, what implications does that have for global rates? Well, that's where that's where the, it becomes quite quite tough. And as, as our listeners will know, we had been quite defensive on, on, on interest rates for, for, for some time. And obviously, we gave that up to some extent um, when we saw that uh, the, the global economy was taking a, taking a pause anyway in the in the, in its growth trajectory, um, I think now we get to the point where, frankly, interest rates are now the other way. So they're more or less expecting no more inflationary surge or even no action by central banks and even potentially cut in the U.S. and cut in Australia. I mean, you've got 
So you could say the rate markets today are sort of priced for the very, uh, you know, very much an inflationary surprise to the downside. You can see that in, in pure inflation prices too. The, the forward inflation market is incredibly cheap. So um, now, if you, for choice, if you had, if you had, uh, you know, if you had a you know, very flexible mandate, you'd probably go long inflation, um, which we which we do, and that you'd probably try to short interest rates, um, or at least play for higher rates. Um, but of course, you know, you you haven't seen the trough yet in the, in the in the economic cycle, so you have to be a little bit brave now. Um, um, and I think, I mean, chatting to Keith yesterday, there's a sense in which um, he may actually be revising up slightly his forecast for the U.S. for 2020. Um, still, you know, got the, the slowdown, and it's not going to be spectacular. Um, but um, because of this Fed pivot and therefore reduced risk of over tightening. Um, the logic is, therefore, that recessionary risk in 2020 has diminished. Absolutely, absolutely. And the Fed and the Fed reacted. I mean, we know the six-week interval between the December meeting and the January meeting. Um, clearly, they saw they saw things in that six-week interval which probably scared them a little bit. Um, and so they went from, you know, saying we're on autopilot to oh well, nothing's on autopilot and everything is data dependent. Um, and and clearly the data is disappointed and 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 still is to some extent disappointing, but um, particularly on the manufacturing side, I call that the, yeah. the, the PMI and everything. But services manufacturing still remains um, weak. Yes. And now the one thing I should say to to our listeners is that you know when people talk about a European recession, I think we should be quite careful. Um, there there probably is and will be in in 2019 the largest uh, gains in purchasing power by European consumers for many many years. I mean wages are growing. Between two and two and, and, and two and two and a half percent now. Inflation has now slowed because, of course, energy prices have come down. The oil price is always it's one of those official, unofficially you know, known as a tax rise or a tax cut, and yeah. we're in tax cutting phase, aren't we? Indeed. Um, and then you have fiscal policies, which, having been you know more or less neutral to tight, are loosening a little bit everywhere. Um, and so the gains in purchasing power are going to be in the one to one and a half percent range. Um, and you know consumption in, in the major economies is about two thirds of GDP. So for, for for the economies to go in recession when two thirds is growing well one and a half percent, I mean I wouldn't be surprised if European growth surprised the upside this year. Um, but that's just because the industrial sector is the most volatile component, and we all see it every day, and we get PMIs and all of that. Right. So I think we'll have a bit more resilience, um, which obviously tells us that you know the, the cyclical parts of the markets, and particularly you know we've seen that in equity markets, but also credit markets, high yield and so on, cyclical parts, which is really, really lost out. There's been the big loser. Right. It's probably where where we have to look for opportunity. I'm going to put words into your mouth, but really if I put the the strand of the conversation thus far, you know, we're talking about elongation. Mm. Yeah, the the postponement of the the, the end of the cycle or the bear market, whichever you want to call it. Right. Well, you know, and I think... From a client point of view, given the sort of fear that grips everybody um, in Q4 last year, um, the sort of snapback and reversal is something which I suspect will be um, preoccupying clients um, quite a lot. So, with that well, said, also, if I, if I may, it also it also gave you a, a hint about how difficult market timing can be because absolutely. because this this round trip lasted what all of three months yeah. altogether. Yeah. 
and frankly, you know, I, I don't know what the governance arrangements of all our clients are, but I know that very few have the agility to be able to jump from one asset class to the other. Um, and the, well, the other leave that to their managers or their manager, right. uh, like us. Uh, but even for us, you know, you, you, you get it wrong by a couple of weeks and it really hurts. Well, I suspect also that the volatility was exacerbated by the fact that the three-month round trip that you described encompassed in the middle of it year-end. Um, which tends to distort things as well, and some liquidations of exactly some of our competitors' funds and so on, which is you know, that's all that's all press. So it, yes, it, there are some technical elements that aggravated the picture, um, but nonetheless, these spikes in volatility they're quite difficult to trade. Um, so just just lastly, um, therefore, from here, um, how do you see the opportunity set? Um, maybe start with um, emerging markets. Yeah, so emerging markets. Um, You've got, I mean, the problem with emerging markets, I always say, you know, we talk about emerging markets as if they were were one thing. They aren't. You've got investment-grade countries, you've got high-yield countries, you've got investment-grade companies, you've got high-yield companies. And so you've got to be able to to shop around. But clearly, um, you know, if you do believe, like we do, that the the cycle isn't ended and it's just, you know, being being paused for a a gentle restart, and if you agree with Keith's forecast, then there's, there's plenty of value in sort of high-yield sovereigns, for example, um, and some of the investment-grade companies that are, just happen to be headquartered in a country called Emerging. Um, <laughs> some of these are world-beating companies that just happen to have some sort of sovereign ceiling attached to them. Um, and so we see quite a lot of value there. Uh-huh. And we see, by the way, a lot of demand for, the, for, those, uh, for those securities, um, from, from, particularly from dollar-based investors right now. Yes, not least because I think there is a sense, again, that the dollar is sort of likely to flatline more from here. Um, and then in terms of um, investment grade? So, investment, yeah, investment grade, clearly rebounded. It's probably retraced about two-thirds of the, 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 the sell-off. So you could say that's probably the, the area where, and again, we, you know, we see no real issue, you know, credit issue anywhere near, in, in the near term. Um, and you might recall the triple Bs, you know, which were the more levered end of triple Bs, you know, triple I know we agencies will will protest when we say this, but generally we said that they've been a bit lax about rating triple B uh, security. So triple Bs were a lot weaker. They started to retrace. There's probably a good money in the triple B sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the high yield side, you know, we talked about cyclicals earlier. Uh, cyclicals were the ones that led us, you know, in the trough. Um, and I think particularly in Europe, uh, but that's also true partly in the U.S. And I think you know there's definitely some good value in, in cyclical um, high-yield um, high bonds because of that elongation. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, Philippe, let me uh, sum up quickly what we've, um, what we've covered in the last um, 20 minutes. Um, so first of all, uh, the good news is that um, some of the tension in terms of um, the trade dispute between China and the U.S. has eased, and that's been very positive um, for market sentiment. I think you know we know it's slightly postponed uh, rather than resolved, but um, we'll, we'll take it. Um, secondly, the renminbi, the Chinese yuan, has been um, in an appreciation mode, which is interesting and maybe has helped trade negotiations, but is also, um, in a sense, signalling the technical aspect to the likelihood of um, further flows coming in as China enters global government bond indices, and of course we're participating in that. Uh, more broadly, thirdly, China continues to have a massive influence on uh, broader global economic growth and patterns and um, financial conditions. But crucially, uh, given the nature of growth now being less 
um, industrial commodity consumption and more as it pivots towards domestic um, consumption and in time services. That means that the inflationary force from China is much, much less. Uh, and therefore, we've got an environment that is more um, disinflationary, which is therefore uh, allowing um, the Fed and indeed other central banks um, uh, to either change their rhetoric, as in the Fed's case, or, or move, as in the case of, for example, Australia, which is, of course is directly exposed to um, or was historically commodity price-induced um, uh, growth. Um, and so that, therefore, in aggregate can mean um, that the cycle uh, is elongated, and one other thing that you've called out uh, very clearly is the improvement, the structural improvement, uh, because of the decline in the oil price uh, and against the relatively robust employment picture, uh, the improvements in consumer purchasing power uh, to the order, I think we said, of between 1%, 1.5%. And given that much, um, many economies have consumption, consumption comprising two-thirds, that, of course, is a very uh, powerful influence um, on growth. Again, no one should construe you as saying that it's you know gangbuster off to the races growth, but rather rather it's just you know on we go um, with subdued growth but sustained growth. And again, I think we're going to hear from Keith uh, about his um, revisions to his U.S. forecast for next year uh, now that the Fed has changed tack and the reduce the risk of them over tightening is so greatly reduced. So all of that put together uh, is helping um, uh, positive market sentiment right now. Um, and specific opportunities that you've called out uh, within EM, in EM corporates, um, triple Bs um, within investment grade, um, and some interesting uh, opportunities in cyclical high yield as well, uh, given, as I said before, maybe the, the, that, um, as you put it to me when we were talking about this before, kind of bear market interrupted, um, or another way of my word, of uh, the elongation that we're now enjoying. So with that, Philippe, thank you very much indeed. Much appreciate your time. And operator, that concludes today's call. Thank you.